I'm recording this update on February 28th, 2022. Obviously, uh, the global political situation has changed since uh, my last podcast episode. Um, So I'm updating this episode to reflect that. I had a version of this ready to go beforehand, but uh, the whole uh, Russia invading Ukraine thing happened, and uh, the episode that I had recorded and was ready to go, it didn't seem appropriate with the tone uh, right now. I thought I'd have to mention something because uh, the Russian Mennonites that my family belongs to and uh, most of the Mennonites in uh, southern Manitoba, their families would have come from eastern Ukraine, where the invasion and a lot of the fighting is happening now. I don't know, Mennonites have this weird sort of like Forrest Gumpian relationship to world history where they're always sort of like passing through in the background at least in the in the last 500 years since their manifestation it's just too it's too coincidental not not to mention so we do have a Mennonite family ties back to this region of the world although not not national ties Mennonites being you'd say a distinct cultural culture or ethnicity and that's usually what nations are are based on but uh, um that the the Russian invasion of Ukraine definitely took me by surprise and took a, a lot of us by surprise, maybe everybody's by surprise. Who's going to expect an invasion uh, like that? But in this case, uh, in this case, the warmongers were right. They were telling us the truth. Uh, they were telling us what they were going to do. Uh, I didn't take them seriously. I made a mistake. And uh, the the people and the commentators and that uh that i pay attention to that pay attention to that stuff they got it wrong and uh i think i need to think about why that is and um try to rely on more uh, reliable sources of information as we all do and i'm going to try not to comment on things happening on the other side of the world as as much as possible i only really know a few things and that's only based on my own personal experiences so i'm going to try to to stick to that as much as possible at the same time we still need as much information as, as possible to try to orient ourselves in the world. But uh, often that's that's flawed. So I just want to say like right off the bat, like there's no good side to support in war. There's no use in supporting one country over another. Unfortunately, a Ukrainian flag in your profile picture, as well-intentioned as it may be, does nothing really. And let's be mindful that we don't inadvertently uh, end up supporting ultranationalist conservative Ukrainian groups here in Canada. There are working class Ukrainian groups who are active and that still do exist. And uh, those might be a better, uh, a better option for, uh, for information and uh, groups looking, if you're looking to support. In addition to that, if you, if you can't send money like directly to people in need in Ukraine, there probably are groups who are coordinating that as well that you can probably look up online. But most working class people uh, don't have a lot of extra money to send to people in need uh, regardless at, at any time. So the best we can do is just to continue standing in solidarity with other working class people around us and with people who are suffering all over the world. And also with ordinary Russian people who are who are opposing the war in their own countries. Remember, most Russian people aren't in support of this war, and large protests are happening in Russia uh, right now that are opposing the war. 
Most Russian people know that ordinary Ukrainians aren't their enemies, and, and most Ukrainians know that ordinary Russians aren't their enemies. So we should take the same. Uh, so we should do the same thing. I've heard my I've heard my grandmother tell stories of being a kid taking the train into Winnipeg and experiencing anti-German uh, harassment and and abuse by people there. Being careful not to speak German and and such uh, during World War II, though um, German Mennonites in ethnic ethnically German Mennonites in Manitoba during World War II were often conscientious, conscientious objectors and were opposed to the war. But that didn't save them from harassment and abuse. Canada also has its own dark history of mistreatment of Ukrainian people during war times as well. So let's all keep that in mind. And as long as we're not supporting war, as long as we're opposing war and resisting war in all its forms, uh, that's really the best that we can do. And you can also still say with certainty that there's no moral or ethical ground for the warmongering that the US and Canada were doing uh, in the lead up to this invasion and war. It's just reprehensible. And stoking the fires of nationalism against another nationalist group is always a dead end. So any time we can spend with our friends and families and, and co-workers, we can use that to reinforce and build our resolve to stand against war and oppression wherever it manifests, wherever we encounter it. We can at least make sure that we're not perpetuating uh, more pain and suffering in the world than already exists. Uh, war being obviously the the worst manifestation of that and in the 21st century with nuclear weapons at play the urgency of our task to to build that uh, resistance to these systems is just monumental forget even like climate change like nuclear war is the last climate change the last the final climate change uh, we would see in our lifetimes that's for sure so if there's any anything like an organized peace movement where you are, you might want to consider joining it. Um, if there's any like progressive churches or religious communities that are actively working for peace, I know there's Mennonite churches who do this, and and Mennonites. That's actually where Mennonites shine is uh, is working for peace and and the peace movement. And coming from a Mennonite background, that's not hard to do. My grandfather was a conscientious objector in World War II. That's something I can say proudly. I hope I would have done the same. So um, I hope we're all doing what we can to to build that capacity to resist war in, our, in all its forms and to understand and learn about the causes and conditions that lead to these types of international conflicts that ordinary people just get caught up in and, and are destroyed by. Understanding the causes and conditions leading to a war. War is always a racket. So if you if you remember that, you can generally align your moral compass to that, and you'll generally come out uh, okay on the other side, uh, hopefully. With that, I'll leave it at that, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our three-part one-off mini-series on Mennonites, the Freedom Convoy, and the Far Right. It seems to be cooling off now. Uh, other things are taking its place, on the, especially on the global political stage. But... Uh, and I thought I had something specific to contribute to uh, to an understanding of what the Freedom Convoy is and why there are so many Mennonites in it. Um, why we have now like a, a Mennonite Conservative Party leader in Candace Bergen. We had our first Mennonite Premier of Manitoba in Calvin Gertzen. Uh, a guy I didn't mention before, uh, Don Plett, Senator Don Plett, 
the first president of the National Conservative Party, is a Mennonite from southern Manitoba, from Landmark. He's like a small business owner, like a mechanic or an auto body shop uh, owner, that kind of thing. So, like, not only did the Freedom Convoy not come out of nowhere, um, this is a movement that's been growing for a while, uh, very deliberately, very slowly. And uh, Mennonites from southern Manitoba uh, have been there at the forefront from the beginning and uh, are very overrepresented among the far right and the people who participated in the Freedom Convoy. That's not an accident. One of the things that's happened that I wanted to specifically mention since the last episode was the uh, the issue of the school blockades that they were doing at the end of the whole Freedom Convoy thing. Freedom Convoy supporters blockaded the high school in Steinbeck, Manitoba. It's one of the largest high schools in the province. And they also blockaded uh, a few schools in BC, I think in Kelowna as well, where groups of adults, I think up to 50 adults in Steinbeck, showed up at the high school with a flatbed trailer, uh, Tim Hortons and uh, and pizza, specifically Rocco's Pizza for any Steinbeck people listening. You might want to avoid them in the future. Uh, they're Freedom Convoy supporters, um, also connected to a more well-to-do car dealership-owning uh, family. Anyway, these people were luring students outside of the school to this protest. Uh, the adults tried to gain... Uh, entrance access to the school the school had to go into lockdown to keep uh to keep these people from getting inside the school to lure uh students outside to their far-right freedom convoy protest that's what really illustrates to me like the really reprehensible nature of this whole thing it's all really slimy and skeezy and seems just feels really dark when like your anti-lockdown protest forces a school to go into lockdown because of you to keep children safe your your concern about child safety um mental health and obsession with pedophiles uh in positions of power leads you and that's a thing that they have um i'm not making that up that makes you a very dangerous person that leads that leads to people needing to protect themselves from you and uh, the school was right to go in to go into lockdown when your anti-lockdown protest forces a school to go into lockdown because of you, and when you have well-to-do uh, adults trying to lure children outside of school with uh, treats, you might want to question like what the values of these people actually are and if you want to be associated when, with them or not, and what they're actually doing. That's not conspiratorial thinking. Just look at it and decide for yourself. I think like the cops were called in. Another... Another instance where police presence was largely, like, ineffective. Police cruisers were driving by, a cop drove by and was like, uh, it seems under control. Not a big deal. It, it's a very big deal. And uh, it, it won't be the last time something like this will happen. Um, ordinary people will have to get involved and join things like school boards and, and uh, parent-teacher groups and, and whatnot parent-teacher-student solidarity groups, something like that, um, to repel further shenanigans like this. It's just going to be an unfortunate uh, necessity. That's going to be part of uh, a united front method to repel emerging fascism and and the far right in general, which we'll get into later in this episode. And that is the need for ordinary people to organize, to 
physically defend themselves from uh, the far right and fascists, like in the case of this school blockade. The school lockdown procedures are an example of, uh, of ordinary people organizing to protect themselves when the police are standing by and doing nothing, basically. I was also told by someone who witnessed the situation that they were yelling at healthcare workers who were driving by at the time of their school blockade. These are these things aren't accidents; they're connected. Like the attacks on public education and public healthcare. This is what it's all manifesting as right now, anyway. And there were signs that this was going to happen uh, before the Freedom Convoy even kicked off. If you were paying attention, or unfortunately were exposed to these types of circles. And anyone who's, any family members in Steinbach or whatever who's posting this stuff and is listening, I want you to know, people know, we, we noticed, we, we can see you. I saw family members circulating videos on social media alleging a conspiracy with the Manitoba Teachers Society to keep schools in like permanent lockdown and that children were having mental health crises, committing suicide and things like that due to the extended Christmas lockdown and other public health measures. Uh, the clips of the children seemed very coached. Uh, I'm just speculating there, but for a group of people who claim to take uh, children's health and safety so incredibly seriously, this behavior, this use and use of children is abusive. They're completely blind to it. Uh, that is probably like the most upsetting and concerning thing of all. and It makes me extremely upset. I think anyone who sees this stuff happening should be extremely upset. I couldn't watch the whole video. I It was like eight minutes long. I watched most of it. It was just deranged. Like the type of thing that a mentally well person would not make. The type of thing that someone who cared about children would not make. Uh, the type of thing that someone who has an understanding of the world that's grounded in reality uh, would not watch, would not take seriously, and would not circulate. If you're someone who would take something like that seriously, I would seriously recommend that you get some mental help for that. And if you're a family member who's concerned that that you have family members who are watching things like that and are taking it seriously, that you remove yourself from them, that you suspend your relationships with them if you can, and that you take measures to protect yourself from them, especially if you are working in the in any sort of uh, public service, well, especially education and healthcare, let's just say that. It was very deranged and extremely disturbing. I tried to warn people around me about it. I don't know if people, like, gave a shit or not. It's all part of, if you leave out, like, the conspiracy, the deranged conspiracy, secret stakeholder type language that, that they're using in this video, which we should point out is the same language that uh, Premier Stephenson used when when they were announcing the extended uh, Christmas holidays lockdown. You could see this as a, a perfect example of a dog whistle. When you hear people talking about dog whistles, that's what that was. It's no secret that our current government wants to defund and privatize healthcare and public schools, and this grassroots far-right uh, movement wants to do the same thing. Their goals are the same, only they don't... Uh, they don't need to get elected to do it. They'll do it by direct action if needed. And that's really what this per what the purpose of things like the Freedom Convoy are. It's saying, like, look, the, the public has no authority to administer institutions, to administer education health, and health care, or, or even, like, national borders. It's uh, landowners and business owners who should decide uh, how to run these things. 
And that's extremely scary. Uh, if you're not a, a landowner or a small business owner, even if you are a landowner or a small business owner, I'd say that it is that is scary. And it is a sign of things to come, so you should pay attention to it. And if you are a working class person or someone who relies on a working class person, uh, you need these institutions because they're free for you. They're free at the point of at the point of access. Landowners and business owners don't want to pay for them because they feel that taxation is an infringement on their sovereignty, on their freedom. This is what they mean by freedom: is like is no taxes. That's a huge part of it, uh, and that they want to administer their lands and their business like sovereignly basically like conservative politics especially like among the petty bourgeois elements it generally just all boils down to uh lower my taxes i don't want to pay taxes and then all like the insane deranged shit just like grows out from there there's no doubt that the pandemic has been tough for small business and any type of economic stability uh hits small business particularly hard but there's loads of government subsidies and grants for small businesses uh, that are still going, even through the the pandemic. Uh, subsidies are still going for small business. Uh, the the CERB, the one that directs directly benefits working people, got pulled ages ago. So keep that in mind. If uh, small business owners are complaining about taxes, and you're a working person, especially someone who who works for one of these people, you're paying more taxes than your boss. Compare business tax rates to personal income tax rates, and you'll see what I mean. And for sure, compare how many uh, tax credits uh, businesses get versus uh, ordinary working people. I don't think I could claim any tax credits last year. I can't claim tax credits most years. And I certainly don't have enough money left over to donate to any charities or anything. So compare that to your average business owner's taxes. You'll see what I mean. They'll whine and complain and uh, they'll cite chapter and verse on on why that's not true but uh they're wrong and you're right and you can rest easy in the knowledge that uh that's true our state just props up small business to uh to a high degree lots of small businesses wouldn't exist if that was the if that wasn't the case and that's on on purpose later on in our reading when uh Clara Zetkin mentions class struggle and class war that's that's what that means it means the setting up of uh, one very small faction of the petty bourgeois against the against the rest of their communities who are working class. That's all that class war means. And the slogan, no war but class war, you might have heard it if you've been hanging out uh, with leftists long enough. That's what that means as well. Um, especially, It's especially clear in uh, the times of open conflict uh, like we have now. There is no war but class war. It's the ruling class versus everybody else. And you don't need to believe if that's true or not, because they do. Um, the rich, the rich know what they're doing. Believe you me. Ask any garden variety conservative why they think poor people are poor, and you'll see what I mean very quickly. If you're a poor or working person, they'll tell you straight to your face that you deserve to suffer. That's what they told me, anyway. You should hear their thoughts on indigenous people, black people, and feminists. Then they wonder why they don't have any friends anymore. But you know why. So yeah, if you ever hear a conservative small business owner talking about uh, personal responsibility, they don't mean their personal responsibility. They mean everybody else's personal responsibility. And that's just code for lower my taxes. But in the United Front, uh, there is a role for the, mid the middling classes, the small business owners and landowners and uh, more independent professionals in a United Front against fascism. The The important concept is that the United Front is working class led. Um, that is, you don't get an advantage or a leadership position based on your class position. You can work in a democratic 
uh, group with working class people, but you don't get a special advantage uh, based on your wealth or class position. That's all. Uh, you can be a class trader. Yeah, that's totally fine. There's a long history of class traders on the left. Ask Frederick Engels about that. Uh, interestingly enough, he wrote a history of Anabaptism, something uh, might be worth looking into. Okay, one more point about the Freedom Convoy before we get more into the uh, United Front strategy. So the Freedom Convoy and related occupations are wrapping up. There might be some stragglers here in Winnipeg, but they're coming back to, to our towns. They're coming back to our communities. They're going back to their restaurants and their gyms and their uh, health food stores and their skidoo dealerships and their farms and their rental properties, etc., etc. Keep in mind, even though like a lot of us feel like they that they lost, maybe even a lot of them feel like they lost. They were successful in in a lot of things. Maybe not their uh, explicit like stated aims, but those were really just covers anyway. They didn't get the border mandates lifted. They weren't going to do that because that was a joint Canada-U.S. thing. Um, they didn't get Trudeau uh, removed or summarily executed or anything. But they did get O'Toole removed from the National Conservative leadership, replaced by one of them, Candace Bergen, as we said before. And they did have the experience of um, of a long-term organizing project, like building class power and staging a sustained occupation, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, uh, with a lot of with a lot of support. Having some demands met, um, they basically forced the Manitoba Conservatives to very quickly drop uh, as many public health mandates as they possibly could. They're still lingering on into the middle of March. That's not enough for a lot of these people. So you can see how it really wasn't about that anyway. It's just about asserting their own class sovereignty over the rest of us. And uh, a bunch of them, a bunch of the organi organizers did get arrested. You might see that as good or funny, especially if they're like live tweeting or broadcasting their arrest on Instagram live and they're crying and they seem, I don't know, there's a, a lot of schadenfreude going on. Uh, a lot of that's theatrics as well. I bet a lot of them are scared of going to jail, but even the ones that are going to jail, which is a very f small amount, they'll be out very soon anyway. And then they're going to have the cred of being arrested and going to jail and uh, leftists use that too to to build careers and gain clout and start foundations, get funding, start nonprofits, uh, that kind of thing. Basically, uh, turn that activist cred into uh, a paycheck. That's on the bad faith side. Obviously, not all activists getting arrested are trying to monetize it. Uh, but there is a significant amount that, that are. And uh, if we can recognize it on the right, we can also uh, do our due diligence and recognize it on the left as well, because uh, that's not a good phenomenon uh, wherever that happens. Again, most activists are ordinary people, are not even um, considering themselves activists, and they get arrested anyway. And getting arrested isn't a pleasant experience, uh, especially for for a working class or poor person. That's uh, that's often harrowing, and you are you are abused when you're in police custody. Don't get me wrong. So, freedom convoy leaders who are arrested, they probably are afraid of what could happen to them while they're in police custody, and probably rightfully so. They've seen pictures and videos on TV and the internet about uh, what happens to activists when they get arrested, and and these are not mentally well people. They do think that they're living in like an apocalyptic age, like an end times age. That's worth exploring too, the evangelical apocalyptic uh, view here. So um, this is 
this is extremely harrowing for them as it would be for for anyone so we do have to use uh, empathy when and acknowledge the humanity of other people even if they are even if we're in conflict with them so they're going to come back and they're going to keep organizing they're going to keep fundraising they're going to do this again in some way shape or form they're still going to get the um the donations from wealthy wealthy americans corporations and individuals the uh fundraising site that they're using the give send go i think it's called um they were hacked and the uh, list of donors was leaked to media outlets i don't think it's publicly available right now it was for a while but i think it was pulled it it might get publicly available again but uh, some names of specific individuals were were leaked um notably um i think the ceo of the winnipeg foundation that gives a lot of money to nonprofits. they're like the local old money philanthropy uh do-gooder type group here in the city uh was on that list so that's something to know uh non-profits keep that in mind you always work for who your funders are um even if you want to think that you don't you do paul stastny from the winnipeg jets was a donor he tried to walk that back but uh uh, you kind of know a skis ball when you see one, and it's going to be interesting to see if the full list gets uh, gets leaked, how many of my friends and family and people I know are on that list, so I'll be watching, don't worry. Yeah, so all the occupiers and the volunteers and the supporters and the donors, uh, they'll be going back to their evangelical churches, not just the mega churches like Springs and Southland. Um, interestingly enough, I hear that Southland has split now, uh, since the Freedom Convoy. Probably there was some controversy between Freedom Convoy supporters and not, so that's going to be interesting. There's an even more, uh, far-right budding off of a megachurch that's already pretty far-right. That's, uh, something to, to keep tabs on, that's for sure. Where I grew up in Niverville, there's, like, I think there was, like, eight churches when I was growing up there. Maybe there's more now. And, like, pick your flavor of mennonite or evangelical church it doesn't really it doesn't really matter any one of those holds like a couple a couple hundred people for every sunday church service and then they have programming pretty much every day of the week as well and those are numbers that like exponentially dwarf any uh left organizing uh efforts as well like the left doesn't have um like labor halls or uh working class working class meeting places i guess would be some sort of analog to that like if there was like a working class uh run like community center or something like the ukrainian labor temple here in winnipeg or even like class conscious like left progressive uh churches or religious communities there are those too but like they're just like dwarfed like there's like i said like there's eight or even like a dozen churches in a town of like 3500 people just south of winnipeg how many towns of that size are around, are circling Winnipeg, like within the commuter belt and and beyond, and then all across the pl- the prairies? You can kind of get like a an idea of the scale of the far right versus the left and the progressive left, or even like the more radical left. It uh, there really isn't a isn't a comparison. And uh, the left in Winnipeg being able to muster like a couple hundred people for like one day of counter protest during the freedom occupation. Um, like imagine that times I don't know, like a couple hundred, maybe more, uh, churches every week, and you get to see how there is no left infrastructure to speak of. So when we're talking later about uh, the United Front and working class infrastructure and organizations, uh, Claire Zetkin's really speaking from a place where 
uh, working class infrastructure and organizations actually did exist in her day. And uh, now they're now they don't exist anymore. So we have to start at a place that's prior to even Clara Zetkin's starting point. Hence the explicit need, the, like the most important task you can you can do right now, if you consider yourself like a progressive or a leftist, is to become class conscious. See how that works in day-to-day life around you, and then uh, try to um, educate everyone around you about class consciousness as well. And then those people, like a class-conscious working class and oppressed groups, they'll get together and start building these uh, democratic working class organizations from the ground up. Um, or at least exerting influence in the ones in their communities that, that already do exist that can, uh, that can be used. Town councils, community centers, uh, progressive religious communities, co-ops, nonprofit boards, renters associations, uh, advocacy groups of all sorts. Pick your flavor. Wherever you are and whoever's around you is going gonna, is gonna to dictate what, uh, what sort of tactics are going to be open to you. Unions, if you have like a, if you have access to a, a more democratic union, unions are their own sort of problem as well. But uh, unions are like the last sort of he- wheezing, heaving vestiges of um, of what was once uh, like pre-war uh, working class infrastructure that did actually like ex- exert power. That's often where a lot of working people are are going to encounter their opportunities is is in uh, workplace organizing and through and through unions. The Canada Goose Union story here in Winnipeg is a perfect example of that. I'll post a link to a podcast episode I was fortunate enough to be able to contribute to with workers from the Canada Goose uh, Jacket Factory and their struggle to unionize. They took on Bain Capital, uh, one of the cruelest and most oppressive corporate owners. If you know anything about them, like they're they're definitely one of the bad guys, no matter how you cut it. But like... Uh, Factory full of um, working class uh, immigrants, mostly women, um, organized uh, to assert uh, their rights and dignity and respect in what is essentially a working a sweatshop working environment, like here in Winnipeg in like 21st century Canada. Like you don't have to have sweatshops overseas anymore. Uh, we can have them back here again now um, because like working conditions have just degenerated so badly. It's it's not new to import uh people from other parts of the world to do just like the worst possible jobs that that we can think of here in canada and the u.s but it's something we'll have to reckon with very soon or preferably uh, immediately yesterday that's a real thing it's very dark and disturbing and bodes very ill for uh the future of the working class unless we all start organizing now but these people are on the real front lines like the real the real leading edge they're the real tip of the spear and they're extre- they're just ordinary people they just like the rest of us they took on like a massive uh, corporate ownership group and they and they won so if they can do it here in winnipeg then there's no excuse for the rest of us that we can't do it but you do have to do work in in real life and it has to be embodied and and uh, that creates its own its own problems but once you once you realize what the task is and and how to do it then uh, once you get together in in your democratic organizations, then you can start hashing hashing out what your specific what your specific tasks are for your own group. So before we get further ahead of ourselves, I'm going to read 
a few shorter passages from the Clara Zetkin book, the one that we mentioned in, in the first episode, uh, Fighting Fascism, How to Struggle and How to Win. And this is specifically on Clara Zetkin's vision for a united front against fascism. You can use a united front type strategy against in any sort of situation where like a large number of people are trying to take on to assert themselves against a smaller but uh, more powerful minority. And depending on what the circumstances are, who's in the United Front and who that smaller, more powerful minority is, is, is going to change. You can scale it up and down. The United Front against fascism is useful because then it's only a short hop, skip, and a jump over to uh, building a United Front against capitalist exploitation in all its forms. Fascism, obviously, the most dangerous and most severe uh, manifestation of that. But uh, that's maybe a topic for another time. Um, I don't want to add too much of my own commentary to Clara's words because I think uh, she speaks for herself uh, better than I could interpret her. Uh, You're going to encounter some more of the socialist jargon that we defined in previous episodes. Proletariat, bourgeoisie, class war, things like that. Um, I think we already know what those things are. Uh, Soviet, I think, is a new one. Soviet, we think of Soviet Union. Don't think of Soviet Union. think of Soviet as a word for a workers' council. It's a democratic administration of a workplace uh, by the people who work there. Um, a town council for uh, for a workplace. Like the community center in my neighborhood is administered by an elected board of people who live in the neighborhood. Uh, think of that, but at work. And then a Soviet union is just a union of a bunch of those uh, worker councils. Um, so think of that instead of the Soviet union, the country. Um, of course, she does refer to the country, and and especially when the Soviet Union was formed, it did see itself as a union of uh, worker count, of these types of worker councils. Um, I'm still not totally comfortable with all this uh, jargon myself. It feels a little Cold War to me, uh, but I think we can update the language and get comfortable with it and use it and maybe like substitute our our own terms for it that we're more comfortable with. Uh, But for now, we're using what we got. Another topic, if you're going to keep on going down the leftist path, is trying to tease out some of these definitions from what we grew up with. There's lots of reasons why that is, and any uh, serious leftist, especially any serious class-based leftist, will uh, have to reckon with that at some point, uh, why that is. But Claire Zetkin is writing basically... Uh, from the perspective of an early 20th century, pre-World War II, pre-Stalinist mostly, although she was very familiar with Stalinism herself. And the United Front is in opposition to um, the Popular Front strategy that was uh, put forward by the Stalinist uh, bureaucracy that was ruling the Soviet Union at that time. Listeners of um, my early draft of my previous episode will notice I said Popular Front at the end of that episode. That was a complete flub, just a mistake. I meant United Front. Um, I just got them confused at the time. I'm really just trying to stay just a step ahead of the material and report back as best I can in a very basic way. I did correct the audio and did an update on the show notes there, so... I saw a post recently uh, making fun of uh, podcasters as like undergrad dudes with a bunch of Wikipedia tabs open and uh, notes in their margins of their like intro to whatever books and uh, coming off as experts. And uh, that's definitely me. That is definitely accurate, Uh, except I'm not an undergrad. Uh, I don't have a degree at all and I'm 40 years old. So I'm going to so I'm going to make all sorts of mistakes all the time. 
Uh, I'm just like a really mediocre white middle-aged guy who's trying to like make sense of my life and learn some stuff. And part of that is talking about it and uh, getting it out. And hopefully it's useful to other people. That's, that's about it. And uh, I'm at peace with that. I hope you are too. So yes, we're just to be clear, we are talking United Front, not Popular Front. And there are, of course, like socialism nerds and history nerds who will be able to talk about that a lot more coherently than than me. So I'll leave that to them. We just want to use the good ideas of the past by the people who know what they're talking about uh, without getting uh, dragged too far into the weeds on those types of topics. And uh, again, she is a communist, like we said before. But if you're listening to this, you're probably at peace with that. It's probably not too much of a big deal for you. Communists, socialists, anarchists, leftists of all sorts, the working class, vulnerable people, you know uh, what the fascists did to those people um, before World War II and during World War II. So they were their main targets and they knew exactly what they were talking about because they were encountering fascism personally every day of their lives at that point. And that's, of course, not to overshadow the nightmarish suffering of the Jewish community uh, under the Nazis uh, pre-World War II and in the Holocaust as well. And uh, of course, um, lots of leftists and working class and vulnerable people uh, were also Jewish, friends, family members, and, and neighbors of, of Jews in their community. So they're intertwined. But the United Front strategy is extremely, it's extremely simple and intuitive. And that is whoever, whoever wants to fight fascism can fight fascism. That's regardless of class lines, your social, political, economic role. That's everything, that's something everyone can agree on is that fascism is bad and we need to do everything that we can together to uh, to resist it. That's the important part of the United Front. The, uh, the class differences, the social, economic, political differences, those are real existing differences that do need to be uh, reckoned with later. Uh, once the threat of fascism has passed. And hence, the pressing need now, I think the the most pressing need, is to develop class consciousness amongst ordinary people. Once you have that, then fascism isn't going to arise. You can stop the conditions that lead to the emergence of fascism uh, before the need to fight it even arises. So the first section I'm going to read is from page 56 to page 58 in the uh, Haymarket Books version. Right from the get-go, she's talking about the factory detachments. Those are factory uh, self-defense detachments. Organized groups of factory workers defending themselves against fascists. That's not something that we have uh, here right now. We have very few factories left, although I mentioned a factory earlier on. The same model applies to, you can have like community defense or just substitute factory for workplace, or school or hospital, unfortunately, in the case of the Freedom Convoy blockades. But uh, of course, the best way to fight fascism before you need like uh, physical defense uh, groups and plans is to uh, create social conditions that are not fertile ground for fascism to take root in the first place. She's going to identify reformists as, uh, as a dead-end path to take, uh, the reformist position is a dead-end path to take. You can't beat fascism through reform. It's beyond that level already. Appealing to like the liberal government, for instance, to make the necessary reforms to stop freedom convoys from happening in the future, that's not going to work. Uh, they're gonna, there's going to be more of them anyway. 
Once fascist organizations take root, they're not going to follow the rule of the law. As you can see, they don't think the law applies to them already. And you can't beat fascism by ignoring it. You can't beat fascism even by by listening to a podcast or reading books or articles even. like That's why you need to do something physical in the real world as much as possible if, you, if you're able. That's, uh, that's just embodied activity, basically, you could say. Okay, I said I wasn't going to give commentary, then I gave like 10 minutes of commentary. Um, I'm sorry, I do that. Um, you never know. Someone might find it helpful. Okay, I'm going to start reading the first section now. Page 56 to 58, uh, the end of the section. It's just, it just gives a, gives a good picture of Clara's idea of, of what a united front strategy looks like. At present, the proletariat has urgent need for self-defense against fascism. And this self-protection against fascist terror must not be neglected for a single moment. At stake is the proletarians' personal safety and very existence. At stake is the survival of their organizations. Proletarian self-defense is the need of the hour. We must not combat fascism in the way of the reformists in Italy, who beseeched them to leave me alone and then I'll leave you alone. On the contrary, meet violence with violence, but not violence in the form of individual terror. That will surely fail, but rather violence as the power of the revolutionary organized proletarian class struggle. As we have already made a start here in Germany toward the organized self-protection of the working class against fascism by forming the factory detachments, these self-defense units need to be expanded and imitated in other countries as a basis for international success against fascism. But the proletarian struggle and self-defense against fascism requires a proletarian united front. Fascism does not ask if the worker in the factory has a soul painted in the white and blue colors of Bavaria, or is inspired by the black, red, and gold colors of the bourgeois republic, or by the red banner with a hammer and sickle. It does not ask whether the worker wants to restore the Wittelsbach dynasty of Bavaria, is an enthusiastic fan of Ebert, or would prefer to see our friend Brandler as the president of the German Soviet Republic. All that matters to fascism is that they encounter a class-conscious proletarian, and then they club him to the ground. That is why workers must come together for struggle without distinctions of party or trade union affiliation. Proletarian self-defense against fascism is one of the strongest forces driving to establish and strengthen the proletarian united front. Without the united front, it is impossible for the proletariat to carry out self-defense successfully. It is therefore necessary to expand our agitation in the factories and deepen it. Our efforts must overcome, above all, the indifference and the lack of class consciousness and solidarity in the soul of the workers who say, let the others struggle and take action. It's not my business. But we must pound into every proletarian the conviction that it is their business. Quote, don't leave me out. I will be there. Victory is in sight. End quote. Every single proletarian must feel like more than a mere wage slave, a plaything of the winds and storms of capitalism and the powers that be. Proletarians must feel and understand themselves to be part of the revolutionary class, which will reforge the old state of the property into the new state of the Soviet system. Only when we arouse the revolutionary class consciousness in every worker and light the flame of class determination can we succeed in preparing and carrying out militarily the necessary overthrow of fascism. However brutal the offensive of world capital against the world proletariat may be for a time, however strongly it may rage, the proletariat will fight its way through to victory in the end. Despite fascism, we see the capitalist economy, the bourgeois state, and class rule at the end of their tether. Symptoms of fascist decay and disintegration in bourgeois society speak to us loudly and piercingly of coming victory, provided that the proletariat struggles with knowledge and will in a united front. That's what must be. 
Above the chaos of present conditions, the giant form of the proletariat will rear up with the cry, I have the will, I have the power, I am the struggle and the victory, the future belongs to me. And that's the end of that passage, and to which I say amen and hallelujah to that. A couple of things you'll notice is that it's a proletarian united front. That is a united front made of ordinary working people and the people who depend on them. And uh, that's not to say that there isn't a role for uh, for small business owners and, say, like nonprofit structures in that united front. It's just that the uh, regular ordinary working people uh, need to be in leadership. It has. It will. They will necessarily be. Uh, be in leadership because they'll be the majority in a united front. And by revolutionary, uh, Clara doesn't mean violence. She doesn't mean war. When she's talking about violence, it's always in like necessary self-defense, where vi- a violent situation is being thrust upon you and you need to act in your own defense. That's uh, that's something you need to be, like I said, if you're, if you're targeted by violence, you need to be aware of that. You do need a means to defend yourself and the people around you. But as she says, like individual violence doesn't work, and that's where like terrorism comes in. Vigilante groups, as I mentioned in the last episode, that's generally the domain of of the far right. But a, a revolutionary group is one that seeks to intentionally change society and hopefully change society for the better. Um, the Freedom Convoy folks are revolutionary, but they will change society for the worse for the vast majority of people. Um, anything that seeks to take the existing conditions of society, apply knowledge and education to it, and work in a coordinated way through mass movements, that's a revolutionary group. The key is where sh- she says, fascism doesn't ask if the worker in the factory has a soul painted in the white and blue co- colors of Bavaria, etc., etc. Whoever you vote for, it doesn't really matter. They will target you too. It doesn't matter if you vote conservative, liberal, NDP, communist, rhino. It doesn't matter whether you're in a union or not. If you're a target for a fascist group, then they'll just bully you. They'll just abuse you. It's uh, they don't care. So in the same way, like a a united front made up of ordinary working people has to have the same idea. If you're if you're a target for fascism and you want to fight fascism, you're welcome. Everyone has the same role. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you own a business. It doesn't matter if you're poor as dirt. If you're part of an oppressed minority group. If you're indigenous, LGBTQ, immigrant, man, woman, child, uh, anything, it's uh, it's all the same, and that that's what matters. Forging those bonds of solidarity in a united front with the uh, with whoever is available and whoever's involved. Where she says it's necessary to expand our agitation in the factories and deepen it. That's the development of class consciousness, and she notes the factories in particular because uh, at the point of economic production that's where it's going to be the most effective like i mentioned about the canada goose workers that's why they're such a great example fascism these political forces play out most distinctly with most force like at in the workplace at the point of economic production that's why like who owns what is just an extremely important question something you do need to do need to reckon with even if you enjoy your job, even if you work for a small business and you do feel like a family and, and you work for a friend, even if you work for a nonprofit or a religious group, if you're an independent professional or a middle manager or an HR person, if you're a sympathetic small business owner, that is something you will need, you will need to reckon with. Uh, that's why democracy in the workplace is of the utmost 
utmost importance. And uh, whether you like it or not, that's going to include unions. Unions are the ordinary worker's main tool to establish democracy in the workplace. A co-op is, a, is another form. I would say a co-op isn't truly democratic unless it's a worker co-op. Uh, the organizers of the far-right Freedom Convoy were instrumental in fighting the federated co-op refinery strike a couple years ago. There you have two potentially working-class structures, the union and the co-op. They, they got their start fighting ordinary people there. So they know how to blockade schools and hospitals now because they were intimidating workers and trying to break uh, picket lines at the federated co-op strike. It is no coincidence a union and a co-op as undemocratic as federated co-op uh, is. It's not a workers' co-op by any means. It's, a, it's not a coincidence that a, that a union and a co-op were targeted by the same people who would go on to lead the Freedom Convoy. I like the line, uh, every single proletarian must feel like more than a wage slave, a plaything in the winds and storms of capitalism and the powers that be. I think that's very powerful. Uh, that's exactly what I've felt like the vast majority of my my working life. It's a big problem. Uh, I Every coworker I, I've ever had understands this on a visceral level, understands this in their bones, even if they're not able to articulate it. And it is, and it is real. And the more people that can see that and articulate it, uh, the better, because then people can collectively do something about it. It's hard to do because there is such a taboo around ordinary people uh, asserting themselves. And one of the best things in this passage, uh, Clara highlights that the, the capitalist global system that we live under now has the fuel for its own demise, like embedded within it. We are witnessing it. We're living through it potentially uh whether we want to acknowledge it or not whether it collapses tomorrow or 200 years from now or 500 years from now uh we really don't know and can't say and isn't really up to us but it is inevitable and what we can do now is start learning how to and practicing how to build the new world among the ashes of the old even as the old uh system is kind of crumbling and collapsing around us in small and usually imperceptible ways, but sometimes a pandemic or a war comes around and uh, it cracks and shifts and breaks apart a little bit more quickly and more obviously. The new world is being born at the same time. That's sort of like the secret, but for real, it's just kind of an intuitive and mundane and boring thing usually, but we all kind of know it. If you're connected to a religious tradition, you probably know it a little bit more explicitly. The, the Roman Empire didn't last forever. Uh, feudalism didn't last forever. In the same way, capitalism won't last forever. And uh, it's, it's breaking up at the foundations all around us. That's what societal decay is. We are all living in these like niche realities right now where we can't really agree on what even the nature of society and, and reality is. And that's causing a lot of problems for people. We're all socially alienated by design. And the majority consensus for what uh, a better life and a better world looks like hasn't quite coagulated or come together yet. But uh, I'm hopeful that it will. And that uh, working class consciousness and solidarity will be a major part of that. In our own Mennonite history, we were one of the groups uh, born out of the societal revolutions of the early modern period 500 years ago, where we tried to bring about a, an understanding of, of establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth, of 
of modeling our societies after early Christian societies where everything, all property was held in common and everyone was, was taken care of. That's sort of the idea. That's sort of what we're still doing now. And socialism or, uh, understands itself as within that, that Christian uh, lineage. And obviously you don't have to be a, a Christian or a white European to participate in that or to understand it. Um, there's elements of the same philosophy in all major world religions, I think, and and are the basis for um, many indigenous uh, cultures and governmental systems. You don't even have to call it socialism if you don't if you don't want to. It's just a pretty apt descriptor and has been useful for uh, a lot of people in the past. Even among southern Manitoba Mennonite families, you'll find a lineage or tradition of of socialism. I think uh, Mennonitism understood uh, at its best, at its core, is an early expression of socialism or communism. And you're almost guaranteed to find grandparents or great-grandparents who were sympathetic to socialism, if not outright explicit socialists. You might want to ask your parents or grandparents um, why that family history has been repressed or why there's branches of the family that moved away or aren't with you anymore or, you know, uh, what happened to them during the 20th century world wars, things like that. You may find your parents or grandparents were only relatively recent adopters of uh, what is essentially like a a foreign conservative ideology that uh, doesn't have a place in your family lineage or tradition. Um, Certainly, if you're a younger person who's uh, being radicalized online and taking on a more explicit conservative bent, that would be the case. You would be an aberration in your your family tradition there. You might want to think about why that is and how you can correct that. You probably have some people around you who could help you with that. Um, Like I said earlier, if you're a Mennonite, an easy and natural um, way to start correcting that course is to get involved in peacework, in any sort of uh, peace movement, any group around you that's explicitly peace-based, anti-war-based. I know there are groups and and churches in Winnipeg and Southern Manitoba that are doing this work already and will need help to uh, ramp up their efforts. You might want to reach out to them. My grandfather, who was a conscientious objector, was also a social democrat. I'm told he was an avid CCF NDP voter, and social democracy is a facet of socialism. I had a great-grandfather who was an open socialist, and you might have one too. You might want to look into your family history a little bit. You might want to find out why your grandparents uh, were socialists. Like, they, they weren't stupid. They had information. They they were just as smart and decent and wise as you, um, probably more so. And probably the the only difference between them and you is the amount of suffering that they endured through the 20th century, through World War One, the Great Depression, and World War Two. Uh, especially if they were conscientious objectors, uh, they knew w- what suffering looked like. They knew what life at the beginning of the 20th century looked like and the end of the 20th century looked like and how they got there and how that was built and uh, the benefits of working collectively uh, together to build a better world. They probably had some deeper understanding of that than uh, a lot of us do now. They weren't without their faults, of course, and they had blind spots, but honestly, so do we. I'm just saying it's something to consider. 
We're going to read the next section in the Clara Zetkin book now. This is uh, taken from later on. Appendix B, Zetkin's appeal for a united front against Nazism. There's good stuff throughout the whole book. Um, even Appendix A and the commentary and stuff is is good. So, And it's a short book. You may as well read the whole thing. But uh, this is from the short section at the end, uh, subtitled Zetkin's Reichstag Speech on Fascism 1932. And this is, this is unique in that uh, Clara Zetkin... She was the oldest member of the German parliament at that time. I think she was in her 70s, like 75 or something. And so she, there was a tradition that the oldest member of parliament could could give a speech in every session. And she used the opportunity to speak about the urgent need for a united front against fascism. Uh, This is after the Nazis had taken power in Germany. So there were Nazis in parliament at the time that she was speaking directly too. There were people in Nazi uniforms and SS uniforms and stuff like that in the audience. She was speaking directly to the fascists, which is pretty incredible. A a communist little old lady, one of the prime uh, targets uh, for fascism, uh, is speaking about the need to unite against them uh, right to their faces. So if the little old lady can, can speak to Nazis in this way, right to their faces in the Reichstag, in uh, 1932, you can certainly uh, you can certainly do it to your friends and dads and uncles and and all that stuff too. And if more of us ordinary people did did speak up and and confront far right ideas where we find them, uh, instead of staying silent or being polite and just letting people around us do it, then uh, then we wouldn't have a potentially emergent uh, growing fascism now. I'm guilty of not speaking up myself, and I wish I would have trusted myself and done so more in the past, but we can all start somewhere. Okay, um, where, where Claire is going to mention uh, millions of women in sexual slavery in, in Germany, I will admit that I'm not 100% clear what she is referring to, uh, whether it is uh, women, women forced or coerced into prostitution or the sex trade uh, against their will. Um, there probably was a lot of that going around, uh, at the time, uh, in late Weimar Germany. Um, but she could also just be referring to the, uh, bourgeois family, the, the authoritarian patriarchal family as well. I'm not sure exactly which one she's referring to. Uh, people who know more about feminist history would, would probably know more than me on that. Uh, but we spoke about this type of, uh, authoritarian uh, family structure in the previous episode or the previous two episodes. So that could be what she's getting at. I'm going to read this uh, whole section starting at the bottom of page 85. Our most urgent task today is to form a united front of all working people in order to turn back fascism. All the differences that divide and shackle us, whether founded on political, trade union, religious, or ideological outlooks, must give way before this imperious historical necessity. All those who are menaced, all those who suffer, all those who desire freedom must join the united front against fascism and its representatives in government. Working people must assert themselves against fascism. That is the urgent and indispensable precondition for a united front against economic crisis, imperialist war and its causes, and the capitalist mode of production. The revolt of millions of laboring men and women in Germany against hunger, deprivation, fascist murder, 
An imperialist war expresses the imperishable destiny of producers the world over. This destiny, shared among us around the world, must find expression through forging an iron-like community of struggle of all working people in every sphere ruled by capitalism. It must also unite them with their vanguard, the liberated brothers and sisters in the Soviet Union. Strikes and uprisings in various countries abroad are blazing fires, showing those who struggle in Germany that they are not alone. Everywhere, the disinherited and the defeated are beginning to advance toward taking power. Millions of women in Germany are still subjected to the chains of sexual slavery, and thereby also to the most oppressive form of class slavery. They must not be absent from the united front of working people now taking shape in Germany. The youth who want to blossom and mature must fight in the very front ranks. Today, they face only the prospect of corpse-like military obedience and exploitation in the ranks of obligatory labor service. All those who produce through intellectual labor, whose skill and will augment social well-being and culture, but can find no expression in the existing bourgeois order, they too belong in the united front. The united front must embrace all those who are dependent on wages or salaries, or otherwise must pay tribute to capitalism, for it is they who both sustain capitalism and are its victims. I am opening this session of the Reichstag in fulfillment of my duty as honorary chair, and in the hope that despite my present infirmities, I may yet have the good fortune to open, as honorary chair, the first Congress of Workers' Councils of a Soviet Germany. Again, hallelujah and amen to that. She just kicks ass. I, <laughs> I, I love her so much. It's worth learning about her. She's, uh, she's a heavy hitter. Um, and uh, yeah, I think she was 74 when she gave that speech. She was old and weak and frail. And uh, she would she died the next year in exile um, after the Nazis outlawed the Communist Party in Germany. As we know, many more people paid a higher price than that. What's amazing is her scope for the United Front. The United Front is when everybody gets together. You link arms, metaphorically or physically, depending on the circumstances. You circle the wagons and you you face the fascist ideas circulating in your community or the fascists themselves and you and you look them in the eye and you your friends your family your co-workers your neighbors everyone in your community and all your working class and community organizations stand united together by doing so you keep yourself safe everyone around you safe and all the vulnerable people that depend on you uh safe and anyone can be in it anyone who opposes fascism um all workers of all stripes, frontline workers, factory workers, salaried workers, blue collar, white collar, gig workers, independent contractors, artisans, and craftspeople. There's even a role for higher paid, more independent professionals, small business owners, if they're willing to be class traders, people who work for nonprofits. There are material conflicts within this united front as well. But in the case of a united front against fascism, uh, those things can take a back seat. When she says that uh, there are those who both sustain capitalism and are its victims, in a sense, that's all of us, whether you're a worker or a small business owner or a, or a professional. We both sustain it and we're, and we're its victims. We're all forging our own chains, uh, so we must all uh, liberate ourselves from them. Together, you can't do it alone 
and you can't run away from it and you can't ignore it and you can't hope that it just it's not just going to go away and a radical commitment to democracy and class consciousness is are the tools that you can use to do that okay so those are some of my thoughts on uh Clara Zetkin's idea of a united front against fascism i'll leave that there for now i won't say whether i'm going to do a follow up one or not maybe i will maybe not i probably will have to do one eventually I'll talk to you again. Hope you're well. May we all work for peace in our lives, in our communities, and around the world. Take care. Bye-bye.